Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, I'm recording. Hey, you guys all backed my Kickstarter, huh? Have you? I did, I did. <laughs> yes. I'm looking at it right now, 42,000 so far. And uh, as of this moment, it's exactly 48 hours in. Uh, we've already knocked out, I think, six stretch goals. Wow. We are just just cruising through it. But, but i got to say, this last, this last stretch goal, this last getting to 40,000, boy, that was... Uh, that was slow. It slowed way down. I think we're, I think everybody's, uh, I think the whole thing is starting to slow down a bit. And that, uh, so I'm, now I'm getting into a different flavor of nervous, but so exciting that it's, uh, that it's funded. Um, and we're good. So now we're doing it. It's for sure. Time to move on to the, uh, the editing and all that stuff. Um, Oh, it's, it's such a relief to get it funded. Another another good Kickstarter project. And we got projects we love. We got the coveted projects we love thing from Kickstarter for my first ever Kickstarter. That's that's super cool. I'm excited about that. I think that's cool. Do you know how they decide that? My uh, my understanding is is that it's their staff. Um, and they look for stuff that seems to be artsy. And so, because Kickstarter kind of does seem like they're about the art. So I think, I think that somehow that's their primary criteria is that it seems like art. And I, and I'm not sure how arty the skip book is, but I do think that the, the video is definitely arty. So the video, the being that animation, I think is pretty great, and that's maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what got us in. I'm not sure, but then you know, for whatever art there is in the skip book, surely we've had this much art in my previous projects, which were not loved. All right, today we're going to review Desert or Paradise, like ten pages of it. And um, <clears throat> I, uh, I need to say, hey, everybody listening to this, hey, all you pod people, go buy the book, huh? Although I think we discovered in our last podcast that uh, the physical book might be a little expensive. You might want to get the, uh, the Kindle book, um, which I think is still available. Is that, isn't that what we figured out? Were we finding out that the uh, physical book was like, uh, like you could possibly get it somewhere, but it was going to cost a lot of money? It was going to be like 40 bucks or something? So it looks like today a used book is available for $67, and it's on Google Play for 16 And then there's some other books that got advertised too. Okay. All right. Page 59. Um, is there anything else we need to talk about before we jump into the review? Any other stuff about Permies, the Kickstarter, 
Um, <clears throat> news yeah. of the week. What? If you guys haven't gotten to see the Kickstarter video yet, it is super cool. You get to see an animated Paul Wheaton. Do it just for that. Go <laughs> <laughs> see it. It's great. I thought it was pretty cool. I thought they made me look good. Um, so, I, I don't know. I thought it was fun. I thought it was just super fun. And uh, we're already talking about some future projects with those guys. Um, some more. They want to do more animations for me, like on my YouTube channel. I'm just powerfully excited about that. That's cool. Yeah. All right. Um, Desert or Paradise by Sepp Holzer, uh, published by Permanent Publications. That's Maddie uh, Harlan's outfit. Uh, and I think it's distributed in the United States by Chelsea Green, although I think Chelsea Green must be all out of books. Um, page 9, Regrafting Wild Fruit Trees, Example, Avocado. <clears throat> we noticed some wild avocado trees next to the house. And so which one is this? This has to do with... The Andalusia. This is that guy that's the, uh, he's got the organic orchards. We noticed some wild avocado trees next to the house. The steward had left them growing because they gave shade to the building. These trees had self-seeded, had not been grafted, and were tall, healthy, and beautiful. So now he's talking about all the other trees that they're seeing are very sad. But these trees are tall, healthy, and beautiful from seed. They also sported rather large fruits. These trees had come into being by chance, naturally, and looked similar to known varieties, but were clearly different. With a discovery of a mutation like that, a grower can develop his own varieties with the qualities of a wild fruit, a high yield, and great quality in general. It can sometimes happen that a stand of fruit trees in a garden or plantation gets grafted onto a particular rootstock with bad results, as that rootstock might not be suited for the climate or simply give too much work. It can also happen that right next to these, some own root wild species grow, superior to the grafted ones with better flavor and quality, as was the case with the wild avocados. Own root means plants that are not grafted. They grow from seed. Their seed developed through natural pollination, and genetic information is passed on to the next generation in more than one way. Therefore, the plant may produce delicious fruits or inedible ones. These are natural processes and happen everywhere in nature. I think they deserve to be studied more. I think it is well worth watching nature and evolution in one's environment. Because amongst these wild species, the most resistant and high-quality fruit trees can often be found. So, <clears throat> I know that I'm a powerful advocate of starting everything from seed that, you know, do not do the transplant. And I'm also against grafting. Um, I 
can see where people might sometimes do grafting, but a lot of my philosophies on how I got to where I was were at the very least influenced by things that Sep has said to me in the past. So when I'm hanging out with Sep and I'm asking him about, you know, where does he start? Basically, he says that he used to use his greenhouses for starting stuff that would be transplanted, but he doesn't transplant anything anymore. Um, he uses his greenhouse to breed earthworms, and he's got three different breeds of earthworms that do different jobs for him, but nothing about transplanting. And um, he also does not like to uh, use any kind of grafted trees, and it's like, well, yeah, but in your video, that's a grafted tree. You're, in fact, not only is that a grafted tree, sir, but right there in that video that you and I are watching at this moment, is that not you holding a grafted tree and transplanting it? And his response is, is, well, the thing is, is that the guys that took the video showed up to take the video, and there's kind of nothing for me to do except stand around and point at stuff. And they wanted to see me doing something. So one of them went into town and got like 50 trees for me to transplant. And I was like, 50 free trees? <laughs> I'll transplant them, sure. <laughs> so the other thing is is that it was like the same thing where it's like he's showing his aquaculture stuff <clears throat> and uh, and of course what the what the fish are eating is what's in nature and uh, and he doesn't ever feed them and so of course what does he do on video he feeds them and I do the exact same thing what is that you're doing you're feeding them you just told us you don't ever feed them and it was the exact same thing. It's like, well, they wanted to see something, so they brought stuff for me to throw in to the fish for them to eat it. <laughs> so I'll do something on the video. And it's like, oh, okay, that, that makes sense. <laughs> I'll let you off the hook this time. So, <clears throat> yeah, Seth, as much as we see in the videos, him transplanting grafted trees, he does not like grafting. And he does not like transplanting. He wants to grow everything from seed the way nature designed, which I think is rather brilliant. And I, I endorse that. I embrace that. <clears throat> All right. I'm going to pick up again on another uh, paragraph on page 60. <clears throat> Do any of you guys have anything to say for up to this point? Well, I wanted to read a little bit from the next paragraph because I thought it was really interesting. Okay. So, um, Seth writes, on a tour of the property, we noticed that the wild trees were nibbled, whereas the grafted ones were not. We investigated and found the reason quickly. The wild fruits simply tasted better. And I think that's a really fascinating point, that, like, nature makes things that's good for creatures to eat. And when we get in the way and think that we're, well, uh, I guess so. Sometimes I just get so flabbergasted when I talk to everybody. But when we <laughs> manage nature or control nature, we influence things that don't taste very good. And so they sit on the counter and they don't rot. And food rots. Food that tastes good doesn't last long. And I think that I thought that it was such a fascinating piece to be in this book. Like, everybody wants to eat these trees that we haven't messed with. So... 
that just encourages me to stop messing with the plants and stuff. So on that point of how good food rots, I recorded that podcast ages ago with Sally Fallon Morell. <clears throat> and I am ashamed of myself for my role in that because to be respectful to her, I should have like read her book bef- before recording that podcast. And I had, I had not, I still think it turned out to be a great podcast. One of my all time best. And it had everything to do with her and nothing to do with me. Um, <clears throat> And so I, I do kind of feel like uh, one of the points he said, because I raised that point up to her, because that's, that's what's in Michael Pollan's book, is it's like we're so used to growing things, and it's like the stuff that's available at the grocery store is the stuff that, that has a good shelf life, and it has a good shelf life because the bacteria and fungus has decided that it is not food. And uh, so maybe we should also think it's not food. And Sally Fallon Morell had a, had a different position. She said, actually, stuff that is more alive and is the very best food tends to keep the longest, and it, which is completely the opposite. And so I'm, I kind of feel like I desperately need to read her book in order to better understand that. And so I kind of... I, I I kind of feel like it's obvious to me the thing that you just said. I believe I I think that that makes really good sense to me. I really understand that. And uh, the thing that Sally Fallon Morell said, I suspect, is equally true. I just do not yet understand it. Well, sort of where my brain goes is that when they wanted meat on ships two hundred three hundred years ago, they would load animals, and you would have goats and chickens on ships as I understand it or at least I've, I've read about it um, so that they would have that live living food but I don't know once something fruits and goes to seed then whether it stays on the spot or not like a lot of those plants um, like there's a, a process of a birth, a growth and a, and a death and so the plant isn't going to stay alive indefinitely. So while I hear what she's saying, like the the living tree is the part of this tree that Seth is talking about getting nibbled on. Right. So I, okay. I can see both both being true, and you bring up a really interesting point. I yeah. I just I I just need to be able to wrap my head around her point, and I haven't yet. <clears throat> but when. Yes. Sorry. Um, when you pick an apple, it has not died yet. It is alive. And when you eat that apple, it is alive. It's just kind of a funny thought. Uh, <laughs> but uh, some apples will be, have sort of a better protection from the world. Like their skin will be a little thicker or they handle moisture or they handle humidity or dryness better than other. So it will stay, it, has, it probably still has some of its immune system, right? Like it's still, like it's meant to stick around a little longer. So I could see how a healthier apple that hasn't been bruised or nicked, um, it would still still be, you know, if you pick up a pie, sometimes that little spot, the little sap spot will heal over just a little bit before uh, 
you know, while it's sitting on the counter, while it's picked, it seems like. So I could see, I, I don't quite understand the both ways, how both ways are true. It does seem like both ways are true. Uh, so I could see some varieties just being better at staying alive a little longer. That's true. I like that. And I think you're right. I think sometimes if you get a little scar on a picked apple, it has a way of healing that tiny scar. So, plus, I kind of feel like it comes back to Michael Pollan's bit a little bit about the botany of desire. How the apple tree is using us to convey those apple seeds to farther away. We're going to, in theory, stand at the apple tree and eat the apple, maybe even several. And then we're going to walk two miles and then poop out those apple seeds, complete with a fertilizer package. And then the, the, a new apple tree will grow in that new spot. That's, that's the apple tree's devious plan. And so, and that's how it's using it. So it seems like the fruit might drop, but it'll be a gem for a while until something eats it. In fact, the trees that have the fruit that lasts longer on the ground is the stuff that is like, is more likely to be eaten and carried away and then create a new tree. So a little bit of a Darwinian approach of sorts. All right. I'm going to move on to the next uh, segment here, a very exciting segment. You guys ready? You got anything? Do you have anything for up through page 60? Nope. Okay. Uh, the next piece is Project Spain, Water Paradise Instead of Desert, at Princess Nora von Lichtenstein's in Extramadura. Woo! <clears throat> That's a lot of wordy bits. I suggested they create a water landscape with several lakes and ponds. It would have been the first project on such a large scale, and I could not show proof that it would work. I had no doubt that it would. But the other experts were not confident. There were no wells or streams. So, where would the water come from? The annual rainfall was only about 400 millimeters. And I looked it up earlier, that's 16 inches. And I'm kind of thinking like, wow, 16 inches, that's more than what Missoula gets. You know, oh yeah, I could work with that. Easy. There was a lot of debating, but eventually Princess Nora decided to follow my suggestion to create water retention spaces. So now, when I've heard Sepp tell this story, he talks about how there's all these other experts, and I kind of get the impression that there's like a total of 20. So he is one of 20. And the other 19 seem to have an expertise in talking about how Sepp's a dumb fuck. <laughs> and they don't seem to have any other thing that they do besides follow Sep around and tell him that he's a dumb fuck. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I I don't know. Are there? Does anybody know if there are other 
like any of the other projects there? Because that was that was the other thing I learned. Is I, I kind of got the impression it's like twenty thousand acres, and each of the experts basically was given not given was was had a thousand set aside for them to prove, you know, their way of reversing desertification. And because part of it is is that man, look at how deserty it looks. It it does look really bad. It looks pretty grim. So it's like, it is, it's a big patch of desert. And, um, and so she's like, okay, let's solve this by bringing in the experts. And each expert has their play space. And we'll see who really is an expert and who's a poser. And, uh, um, but anyway, and I also got the impression from Sep, but I heard it from Sep, therefore. <laughs> You know, it's been sepified, if you know what I'm saying. Um, Seps was the only one that went magnificent, and all the others were like no change. Um, I don't know how true that is or not true. Actually, I kind of think it's probably true, but then again, I think Seps, you know, a genius, and I think most other people who claim to be up there with Sep are generally not. And so, and and I just feel like I've also visited with a lot of experts who kind of seem to talk a lot about expertise, but they just didn't seem to have anything to show for it. And so, and they are glad to say how Sep's a dumb fuck. I've met people who are like Sep's a dumb fuck, and it's like, well, really, oh, really? What are what's your project? What have you got going on? Not a fucking thing. That's kind of what I thought. Um, I mean. And you might think I'm I'm exaggerating, but I'll bet you that there's been 20 people that I've met that are absolutely certain that sets a dumb fuck and doesn't do anything worthwhile. And those people have nothing, not a fucking thing. So it's one of those things where it's like the proof is in the pudding. Show us your pudding. Seth has shown us his, which I think in itself is a very courageous thing to not only do a thing, but share it publicly, um, especially something that's working so well. <clears throat> All right. Um, moving on to the next piece. Uh, we started in the autumn of 2006. Again, I did not dig out big lakes. I just used the natural formation of the land and inserted barriers in key positions to collect the rainwater. The dams were built in the shape of a meander. The drains and fords constructed with natural stones to make it look natural. These should look as if the landscape has always looked that way. Nature helps us when we do things in a natural way, and it is also aesthetically pleasing. I, I think the pictures in this section are amazing. And um, especially the gardens. I know on this podcast I've shared the story about the gardens in Spain that he did, about how the other experts talked about you can't grow a garden without irrigation, and so he built hugel cultures. 
that were unirrigated, and he built some that were irrigated. In the first year, they both produced really well. And in the second year, he shut off the irrigation to the, to the, one that, the, the, the ones that had irrigation, and then everything there died. But the ones that had never had any irrigation continued to do magnificently. The other experts did not think that we could build lakes on this site because the ground either consisted of many rocks and little soil or was too sandy in other parts, and they said that all the water would drain away. They said we would have to blast the rocks or use concrete to make the area waterproof. They felt certain that no water would collect otherwise. I kind of feel like um, almost anything exciting that's done seems to come with, a, as you're doing it, with a collection of people that are saying, it'll never work. And uh, some of those people are people you actually trust. And um, I, 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 I remember when I did the thing about the, the light bulbs, my very first Kickstarter, I don't know if anybody on this call even knows what my first Kickstarter was. I, um, I wanted to make a YouTube video, but the equipment that I would need to do it cost too much. I, like, I wasn't willing to pay it myself, so I did this Kickstarter, and I felt like this is a great way to kind of learn about Kickstarter. Um, and uh, uh, I got funded, um, and, uh, and I bought the equipment, and I started, you know, doing the experiments. This is where I'm testing all those light bulbs. And um, I, a very good friend of mine is on the phone with me, and I spent three hours on the phone where he's telling me that this is folly, that it is a waste of my time to touch these light bulbs and to do anything with them. If, if the things I claimed were true were indeed true, then we would know about it. They would have already done the experiments and shared the results, and we would know about it. And I, I told him, then it turns out that I am they. It is my responsibility to do the test and prove that CFLs are total crap. And I think his position was is that uh, is that he uh, he's a person who loves a political party who has embraced the CFL, <laughs> and so therefore he cannot you know think that there's a way to even possibly deviate because this group has told him that C the CFL is the magic light bulb. And he just can't, he just can't do it. And so, um, I, I think that the resulting video was magnificent. And I, I think I did an awesome job of proving how horrible the CFL is and how magnificent an incandescent light is. Um, and so I'm glad that people gave me the money in that Kickstarter to be able to perform that experiment. Um, but the moral of the story is, is that I kind of feel like it was, it was, it, I felt sad to have a good friend telling me to not waste my time. And, and so emphatically, so much like it's as if his life depended on me not doing the test. 
And um, so, what a what a difficult thing. And at the same time, um, if we go along with what even our friends tell us to do, all we do is end up with what is already known, which what is known is shy of great. And so the only way that we can discover great things is by making great leaps and trying things and experimenting and lots and lots of trial and error. <clears throat> and, and it's going to, I guess, we just have to embrace that we will be without friends, possibly. Um, and to take those risks as well. So Sep is um, making making these leaps and these experts, which I'm sure that he values the opinions of many of these people, um, were so adamant that it is it was impossible <clears throat> to create bodies of water there. Now, of course, in Sep's recipe for creating these bodies of water, I mean, there's two ways to create a body of water. One is the bowl technique, which is not what he's doing here. But the bowl technique is where you're going to carve out a bowl and you're going to have clay and and seal the bowl. Um, and what Sep is doing is um, building a dam with a key. So then you're going to dig down so far that you either reach bedrock or a clay layer and then you kind of make a clay wall on top of that, and then you shore up the wall with big mountains of dirt on either side, and that clay wall becomes a barrier that will make it so that the water cannot continue down. And that's what he did in Spain to make all these lakes, is that he just looked around and found some spots where it seemed like the role of the hills was such that, like, right here, if we put a dam in here, it'll have a lot of retention behind it, even if we do nothing else there. And so that's what he did. Now, it wasn't cheap. It was millions of dollars to make these dams. But uh, the results are magnificent. There are 16 lakes today covering about 27 hectares and they are full all right i'm ready to, to start talking about some stuff on page 64 does anybody have anything for before page 64 or any other comments about any of the stuff we talked about just now The whole area looks like a water paradise today, as if it has always been there. Thousands of birds nest there, various ducks and cormorants, herons, sea eagles, and other wild birds. Lots of different fish live in the lakes, an abundance of flora and fauna. We sowed vegetables, peanuts, and ancient grain along the banks. Nowadays, people come here to learn about natural agriculture and how to prevent desertification. A degree dissertation has been written on this project, too. Nobody wants to sell the land anymore. It has become an oasis in the middle of a very dry region. A miracle, many people say. To me, it is not. 
It is the result of cooperating with nature. Nothing more, nothing less. All right. Looking at these pictures and thinking about the amount of rainfall and looking at the general landscape, which seems to be just pretty much flat, I'm going to speculate that they have a lot of wind. And the reason why I jump make that jump is because the amount of rainfall that they get is more than the amount of rainfall in Missoula, which is in the middle of the Rocky Mountains. And Missoula is a pretty green community. But if you go east to Great Falls, Montana, they are in the middle of the prairie, and the wind just blows and blows and blows. And their rainfall is the same as Missoula, but it looks like these before pictures. Very deserty. Like, like you'll stand and you'll look way off in the distance and look over there, about four miles away, you can see a solitary tree. Like that. So I'm going to guess they have a lot of wind. Um, I think. Yeah. All right. I'm going to move on to how to make a lake or pond watertight and build a dam, unless you guys have anything else to add before this point. I have a comment. So I've, I'm on a several permaculture list, and a lot of people currently are talking about Soil is the foundation. Soil is so important. And Sepp and Zach Weiss, who's a student of Sepp's, um, are like the only ones that I really hear talking about the importance of water and the full water cycle and the half water cycle. And Zach just did a, a free video presentation that I thought was really informative and amazing. And these lakes, um, like, there's so much more water stored in the ground that you can't see that's protected from the wind that you were just talking about, Paul. But also that, that wind evaporation and transpiration contributes to what's called the half-water cycle, which is like local cycling and purification of water, which this, this project in the Extremadura really um, showcases really well. And I know Seth doesn't talk about it here, but having just listened to that, uh, I just wanted to bring that to the surface. And if you don't know who Zach Weiss is, he, there's several presentations on YouTube and on Paul's YouTube channel. And, like, get on his list. He, he runs a business called Elemental Ecology, and he talks a lot about the importance of water. That's what I wanted to add. Thank you. <laughs> I, I buy the book. Right. Buy the book, Desert of Paradise. Desert of Paradise. Buy the book. Desert or Paradise by Seth Holzer. Now, um, Zach is kind of the the, the English-speaking Seth Holzer. I know that he's traveling all around the world and putting in, uh, doing projects like this. Um, I think Seth, I'm not sure if Seth travels anymore. I think Seth does not travel anymore. But Zach does. So all these places that are like, we need a... We need somebody to come in and sepify the space. They're calling Zach. And Zach is, uh, Zach is, he's like, uh, I get these emails from him and he's just all over the world all the time. But uh, I get the impression that right now he's in Oregon working on two different projects in Oregon. Um, but it seems like uh, that's the closest he's been in the, uh, to Montana in ages. And Zach, um, is based out of Bozeman, 
So, all right. How to make a lake or pond watertight and build a dam. People always ask the same question in my workshops. How to make a retention space watertight. There is a misconception in this question because we do not want a retention space to be absolutely watertight. The earth itself is the water-storing body. The water is supposed to slowly seep into the earth. This restores the hydrological balance. Mm -hmm. The only place that needs to be watertight is the dam. And I don't have anything else marked until page 69. But look at all these pictures. Um, it shows it shows them spraying uh, water with fire hoses onto the clay that's going into the key of a dam. To keep it moist. That's it's also probably kinda, because it's too dry. Right, you got to keep it kind of soupy feel. to get it to pack right. It needs to be a little bit squishy. Yep. Um, and then you've got a guy, uh, an ace excavator operator who has taken his excavator and straddled that ditch or whatever it is. That's not even, it's more than a ditch. That's a trench. That's the key for the dam. It's it's deep. Yeah. And I'm kind of thinking like, yeah, I don't think I'd be showing off like that, buddy. I think I'd move that excavator back to safety. It's like, I don't think that's smart to do what you're doing there. This is, I, I want to put a label on the book that says, do not do this. <laughs> <laughs> I can sort of see him falling in, like the whole excavator halfway into that trench. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, that's got, like, disaster written all over it. It's like, oh, yeah, it's cool now. It's, I, I, in fact, from all of the, the – there's that whole series of movies about Jurassic Park. My favorite line out of all of them, I think, is in the second one where the guy um, that's played by Jeff Goldblum uh, says, because uh, everybody's, like, seeing the dinosaurs for the first time, and they're like, ooh, ah, and he says, oh, right, now, you ooh, ah, later, there's running and screaming. <laughs> I don't I So, like, right now, ooh, ah, later, there's caving in and screaming and frustration and, bills about repairs. <laughs> All right. Does anybody have anything to say about any of the content before page 69? No? Okay. Planting of dams. First, I've got a note here that you look at this picture at the top right of page 69, and it's like, oh, Oh, this picture makes me so happy. This is what a dam should look like. And uh, and I also thought that was funny. There was a point where Sepp talked about how he thought that the uh, the guys that are driving the excavators, like they, he was beginning to think that, that they had it in for him or something. But, like, whenever I've seen Sepp interacting with excavator drivers, uh, and I've seen, him, I've, seen, I've seen him interact with quite a few. About half of the time, he fucking hates their guts. They're, they're just fucking idiots. And he's so pissed off at how stupid they are. And the other time, the other half of the time, he loves them. Like, they are, they, they get it. 
They understand it's as easy as breathing. That's a good excavator driver there, you know? So, um, but the, I thought it was funny how he talked about how he thought that they were, like, plotting against him. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I guess he that wasn't doing well with those guys. But this picture is beautiful. Oh, such a beautiful picture. This is what a dam should look like. Um, and I'm so glad this picture is here. It's uh, So, top of page 16. The, the key is, is that it is a dam with a crown. And it's kind of like, I'm so used to, like, people posting pictures of, like, look, I made a dam for my pond. And it's flat on top. And it's like, oh, you made a dam that's going to fail, buddy. That is that is a shitty dam. You made a shitty dam. You think it looks smart and looks good and it looks... It, you know, like, it looks like a road or something. And it's like, that's not what you want. What you want is what's at the top of page 69. It has a crown. If water lands on the top of that dam, it will run off the sides. It won't soak in. This is the way to make a dam. So it has a peak in the middle. Now... The peak is distributed, and it follows an interesting shape. It's not a straight dam, and, and he talks about that. He doesn't like to do straight dams, but which is good. But it's got to be, basically, the top of the dam can be really wide, and it should be really wide. You want it to be really wide because eventually you're probably going to be driving rigs on it. But it still needs a peak, even if it's a shallow peak. Um, and this is a shallow peak. It's like you could drive a truck across this, no problem. But it's still got a peak in the middle of the dam and a gentle slope to the sides. And then as it gets further out towards the edges, it's a less gentle slope. So there's a dome over the dam that you could drive on. And then there's like steeper sides on the sides, which is great. It's This is the perfect shape of dam. I am just so glad. And I've seen steps projects where uh, like like the one in Dayton, Sep had to leave. He was all done. He did his thing and it's like you guys are all set. You guys finish it up. I'm going. You're you don't need anything more from me. And then I came by like a week later and I went, No, 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 no. You don't make the top of the dam flat. And I don't know if they ever changed it. I never, I don't remember going back. I, I don't know. But it's like, uh, I see all these people doing this flat top on a dam, and that is just wrong. Okay. <clears throat> Planting of dams. The dam should be planted, of course. It takes some practical experience to know what to plant, as the plants need to protect, stabilize, and hold the dam together. Different plants have different roots. There are tap roots, shallow roots, and deep roots to consider. Fruit trees do not do very well close to the lake because their roots cannot tolerate too much water. Willows and alders do not have that problem. Plants with tap roots at the foot of the outside of the dam are like 
big nails driven into the soil. They stabilize the whole dam. I had never thought of that. That is, that is awesome. I do not recommend planting them on top of the dam, though, as they could be damaged in very windy weather. It is important that deep-rooting plants do not grow roots into the aquifuge. And aquifuge, I believe, is his word for the key on the dam. That would weaken it. So only plant those if the surface layer is deep enough. Okay. I think it's important that you do not plant trees on the downhill side of the dam, or even the uphill side of the dam. Is that right, Make sense? Don't plant, don't plant trees anywhere near the water on the dam. Because the tree roots, like let's say, let's say it's on the outside side of the dam, like maybe five feet from the peak. Then the roots of the tree will eventually find its way to, to the water thus making a hole that will compromise the dam. The water will start to, you know, drain along the root, and it'll eventually cut through the, the dam. So that's, that is a terrible idea. But the thing with the taprooted trees at the foot of the dam, I think, is really quite brilliant. Um... Uh, as the water lands on the dam, it'll kind of, some of it will flow off of the dam and end up at the foot of the dam where those taprooted trees are. So there'll be a lot of water piling up right there, a great place to plant all kinds of trees. And it's too far away from the water to make a shortcut through the water. I just, I think that this is just, just brilliant. It's just super brilliant, really excellent ideas, really excellent suggestions. But I kind of feel like on the dam itself, I mean, like, I, I think that if you got 10 feet downhill of the peak, maybe shrubbery, um, and before, between the shrubs and the pond itself, you know, small plants, grasses, things like that. I would not plant anything with a massive root system that might try to make a path from the pond or the lake out through the dam. So, um, all right. I, I thought that was some good information about what to plant on the dam. Um, Katie, you got your hand up. What's going on? Thank you. Um, you have said it, and he has said it, and I don't get it. Where, where did the nails go? The nail trees, I, I can't quite picture the right location because they're like, don't plant it here. And then I, and then plant it. And I, 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 where is that again? You know what? I, you're saying that and that, and that reminds me, we've kind of forgotten to try and do that whole thing we've done a couple of times in the past where we, um, we have pictures up at the same time and we kind of make this into a YouTube video as well. <clears throat> but, uh, setting, setting that, the, uh, setting aside the fact that we're all audio right now and no visual, um, all right, there is a dam. And let's say, in the picture in my mind, I'm looking at a cross-section of the dam. 
on the left side is the pond, and right in the middle is the peak of the dam, where the, the cars will kind of straddle the peak if they happen to drive across the top of the dam. And to the right is the, is the dam going down, 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 at a, and so Sepp mentions a two-to-one slope. So like a 30-degree slope going down to the right. And then you get back to, like, let's say flattish ground, the, the, the ground that was there before. So when you get to the point where it's no longer man-made dam, but it's the natural ground, which could potentially be flat, that is the point where he is saying to plant the taproot trees. Did that help? Did that paint a picture? Yes, thank you. Okay, all right, all right. Um, that's all I have marked for this week. And next week we go right into the monk. Um, does anybody else got anything to say about this, this chunk that we've read today? Nope? Okay. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about desert or paradise, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. All the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.